folks, somehow you've moseyed into full contact cannabis by cannabis professionals for cannabis professionals with my host, Mark Stepp of Uppercut Media, and our guest, which is, I don't know, is this the third or fourth time, Kristen? Second. No, you've been at least three times. <laughs> well, it left an impression. I can't remember. I'm so sorry. I believe oh, it's okay. it, I believe it's number three. And you've always been quite popular, too. So oh, that's, of course. Uh, I'm kidding. No, it's great to hear. This is Kristen Nichols, of course. Do you want to update people on what you're doing now? Sure. I'm a recovering journalist. I have been covering cannabis from about 08 till um, 2022 um, at different places. I worked for AP for a long time. I'm in Colorado. And then I left to uh, write about hemp, low THC cannabis for MJ Biz. As you, a lot of folks may know, um, MJ Biz was started by, there was a newspaper in Denver that went out of business in 2009. And the business desk of the Rocky Mountain News was fishing around for new things to write about. Stumbled on uh, marijuana because that industry was just starting uh, in Colorado. So worked with them for a while, um, talking to no one. They they were sold to a different company earlier this year and kind of changed focus a little bit, became a little less interesting to me and realized, you know, 12 years covering cannabis is long enough. I want to do something else. So I uh, quit over the summer and now I'm working for the state of Colorado promoting uh, something called paid family leave, which is where... Um, as you probably know, um, if you like have a baby or you have a sick parent or something, there's federal family leave, but the employer doesn't have to pay you. Colorado is starting paid family leave and will be the 10th state where now you'll, it's like unemployment insurance. You will get paid. Ooh. That's what I'm up to. Well, I'm glad you're back. Which would you rather talk about? Evolution of what you did or you're, you're, are you still keeping current with what's going on in cannabis? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I figured you could you couldn't quit it entirely. So if anybody needs writing, so I am freelancing, so I'm still for uh, uh, events. So we can talk about whatever you want to talk about. Well, I think we need to go into that real quick. Okay. I mean, this the shameless self-promotion. The, one of the reasons I have you on here is about journalism mm -hmm. and cannabis mm -hmm. and, and how it's been such a strange journey. I don't want to say trip because it's so cliche, but <laughs> voyage at first, it was cannabis was what, you know, start out as sensationalistic. Oh my God, it's a scourge. Mm -hmm. And then when it started leaking into culture, mm -hmm. uh, then you started saying things. But at first though, it was always with a snicker, sure. you know, some sort of a little pot joke or whatever. And people giggled and pretended like they really, even though they were reporting about it, they really didn't know anything about it. And so being a pioneer, uh, I understand you, you left the place, it changed. And so this is not one of these things where you come in and, and uh, tell me how it changed. I mean, cause one of the big things that MJ, the MJ biz was about was the daggone expo. Sure. And I, okay. So, but this is just kind of my take. It's fascinating. I have to say, so uh, drug policy advocacy, of course, has happened ever since the controlled substances act was passed in 71. This will, would have surprised me. I never would have thought, but I think what took cannabis from snicker, snicker, um, Cheech and Chong jokes to where it is today really is medical marijuana starting in San Francisco in the late 80s and people uh, using cannabis products as palliative 
assistance for people dying of AIDS. And that's kind of hard to laugh at. It start, people started saying, hey, this can be an alternative to uh, pharmaceuticals. And then in Colorado, when people started um, Realm of Caring folks and the Stanley Brothers started cultivating varieties that appeared really effective for serious kinds of epilepsy in children. And I really think the tone of how cannabis was covered today, I think people in the industry, and, and I certainly believe all, all use is, is medical. That's a kind of a, a silly distinction. But at the time, you know, th that there was no thought that this could be anything but lead you down the road to terrible drug addiction and a life of crime and a life of not being very productive or just kind of being a drain on society and a criminal. To me, I think it really was that advocates wisely really focused on medical and you still see it in emerging new markets, particularly in the South and in the rural Midwest areas. Even places like Texas, my home state of Georgia, Tennessee, where you are, you will not see politicians get up and make fun of people who use cannabis because they know that there are extremely sick people or, or people that vote for them and kids that are really can really find some benefits from the plant. So that really, to me, was the big change. So I was working for a kind of the biggest of mainstream media, right? APs everywhere. It's kind of the 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 big giant on the block. Then I would say MJ Biz's, when I was talking about this business desk, their innovation to me was writing it for business owners. At the time, all coverage, even though coverage was changing by the mid 2000s, long after, you know, the um, kind of medical marijuana move started. And then in the mid 2000s for these business reporters, there still was no one. It was all public policy. Should it be legal? Does it help people? Is it really uh, addictive? That was kind of the coverage. Nobody wrote stories like, you know, how to save money on your greenhouse operation. What are 10 new ways to, you know, clone this and that. There were those, those kinds of like, that kind of advice, business advice was absolutely nowhere in the market. No business publications like a Wall Street Journal type of publications would, were covering cannabis at all. Chambers of Commerce, if I was a, uh, a caregiver, like let's go back to these Stanley brothers and I'm getting kind of big. I've got a lot of patients. I might could use like some advice on um, HR stuff and accounting and I had nowhere to go. And that's where I think kind of the expo business really started getting big because if you were a business owner in California, in the Pacific North, in any of these new emerging, and I was maybe a very skilled, talented grower. I'd been growing and had a little business for many long years in the legacy market, but now I'm getting big and I could use some help on taxes and compliance and working with, you know, USDA, that's all new stuff. And nobody was offering that kind of information. There was nowhere to go still in government to get it. So that's why I think expos have been extremely profitable and extremely popular in the cannabis space where they haven't been as popular or they're not as popular in other industries. Let's say I'm in the carpet business. Well, there's a big carpet expo every year, right? That, but it's not like I need to go to that to be able to find a distributor or I need to go to that to find the equipment I need. That is some, in some ways still the case in cannabis. I'm curious, Harold, from your perspective, where do you go when you need business partners, advice, that kind of stuff? I, personally, I don't go in the sector. Okay. See, this is the, the evolution. This is a great point right here. 
the expos started out that way, mm -hmm. but then there became a plethora of expos. Absolutely. And, and then it was no longer about truly educating. Mm -hmm. And this, and then, of course, now me, I have been to a, a few of these doggone things. But one of the things that always bothered me about that was the unchecked hustling that occurred at them. And people basically selling products and things that I don't even know if they'd been alpha test. They weren't beta tested. That's for doggone sure. And so, and I, and I understood that, the, you know, the economics of you have to get enough booths filled. Yeah. At first, I really do think that like NOCO, all these things did serve a purpose. But at one point, I don't know if they've got a victim of their own success but they started expanding and expanding and expanding. The truth was at the point where they started expanding, true there weren't that many true cannabis professionals. Yep. So what you had was people that were showing up with a, a dream, basically looking whether it was franchising or, or, or my pet peeve was people who were selling equipment that supposedly could analyze your cannabis yeah, and in yeah, for $7,000 in 15 minutes, I can get my real time, you know, and everybody knew on the floor except the newbies that didn't exist. Mm -hmm. It still doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> I love that phrase, unchecked hustle. I think you're right. And I used to joke even before I was at MJ Biz that the fastest way to get rich in cannabis is to set up shop telling other people how they can get rich in cannabis. Absolutely. There's uh, when I say I'm freelancing, I'm I'm working on like uh, there's like a local show in Michigan and there's a cannabis show. It can't be more than an hour away from anybody. I feel like 10 weekends a year you could go to a cannabis show. Absolutely. 10? And <laughs> 20. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I think the real challenge so one I had an interesting former boss who came to MJ Biz from Farm Journal and what blew him away about the cannabis expo world and MJ biz that he could not get over. He, he left the company very soon. He just thought what, it, what he thought was so silly was that cannabis shows aim to be for all things cannabis, whether right. you're a retailer or an extractor, or you're a cultivator, or you're building greenhouses, or you're in insurance and fire protection. Like those things have very, and in other crops, like if you're in wheat, soy, corn, those kinds of things, you don't go to the same, uh, a corn, there are shows, but there's like retailers have retail shows, cultivators and farmers, you know. It's the, about ag. It's what's the, on the shelves in Macy's. They don't go to conferences with farmers. So yeah, I think you're right. I, I love the the unchecked hustle and like and and they really attract, you know, not to be like, you know, parasites, but everybody wants to be in cannabis without touching the plant. How can I sell you? <laughs> you know, no one wants to take, you know, that, that's the dream, right? So you have all these other industries, insurance. I mean, just you, every industry you can imagine under the book wants to like they just assume because they're stupid that that there's gobs of cash sitting around that nobody knows what to do with in cannabis, which is ridiculous. It was never the case. But they think they just show up and someone, you know, again, like you say, some I can just bedazzle someone with some big words and, and some technology. And these people are stupid, but have a ton of money and they're going to give it to me. And that's not the case. Well, also the thing that I found with the expos at first is that they were trying to do, back to, you know, about the farm expos, right? Mm -hmm. They were trying to do two things at one time. One was the guise of this is cannabis professionals, but they were totally dependent upon general admission. And, and that was the twofold thing is here, 
All right. What are, are, are we educating the, the public or are we running business here? And they were trying to do these things where, you know, they were basically trying to do activism. And I didn't, I don't care about activism. I'm sorry. I think it's great, but I'm worried about my bottom line. And, and hopefully that I'll get to year eight. You know, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. and I say this with all the love in the world. I do because, and I'm not going to name names, but some of the people who started this out, it was about activism. Sure. And they never really did think about the business aspect of it. And I don't think it occurred to them if they held these things, there were going to be people who had been selling uh, emus and they were totally in this because this was the new craze. They totally underestimated how many grifters uh, that were yeah, going to yeah. show up. I think a bunch of people like myself, we came and we saw this and it was a bit of a zoo. And then there was the friggin' after parties. I know. Where, oh my God, where you got together and you did blow and bourbon and you charged it to somebody else and no, no business was ever really done. <laughs> I, let me just pile on okay again i'm not going to name names my i was not my first mj biz but I, uh, one of the first when i was working there i was at an after party and again it was like somebody that was at the one of the organizers was like oh you know next year we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna have tigers and <laughs> me and my colleague looked at each other like, uh, i don't think they ever and this company is no longer in business shocker that is the dumbest waste to again, like partying and spending again someone else's money. I can tell um, you. And when <laughs> I, when my company was changing, I have to say I had an opportunity again. All the love. I don't want to disrespect what they're doing. My choice was I. They wanted to uh, talk to me about starting another conference, which they did start on psychedelics. A lot of people, you see it. I'm curious your take on it are leaving cannabis for psychedelics. And it just, they said, oh, it's like the early days of cannabis. And it feels very, again, like a little uh, crummy, the same way of the, the well, activism and versus idiots who just see big money and think this is, you know, I, I was not interested in starting the, doing the same thing over with psychedelics. What do you think? God bless you. <laughs> <laughs> no, because that is. I mean, it's it's this is the the whole thing. This the same sort of people that are looking for that fertile ground to exploit people. They're going to move on to the newest thing. I don't want to sound too alarmist on this because, but the, these new lab created THC analogs, mm -hmm. HHC, O, P, yeah. B, yeah. and they're making these things and they're cranking them out there, basically wanting to try to find which one of these compounds that very well might hit the, the the taste bud, cannabis taste bud, and all of a sudden they'll have a hit product. And it, because that was the whole thing with D8. I mean, the D8 is a perfect example of something that we got caught up again because our customers and our stores wanted it. But you could see that when we got into it, that it this was going to be just like anything else. As soon as people saw their money in it, then people would convert their labs, you know, processing would convert their packaging and all of a sudden you'd go. The thing that did surprise me on this was how fast it happened. Mm. You literally went within a one year span of at first before we learned how to make it, no right? It, so it's everywhere. We, we tried to buy it. 
We had people because we weren't wanting to buy a lot, would not return phone calls, would not return emails. So it forced, it was good for us because it forced us to learn the protocols and go in and actually learn what was going on. The irony of it was eight months later, one of the e companies I emailed to sell us product got a hold of me and was just like, hey, 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 I am, I don't know how you got lost, not returning phone calls to, wow. hey, hey, buddy, <laughs> hey. <laughs> You know, but that was the whole point. And those, so though a bunch of those people who got into D8, then all of a sudden went, hey, if we can find that next cannabinoid, it'll be hot and we can have a run. And so that it's same thing with the psychedelics. Mm -hmm. They're going to do the same doggone thing. And let's, let's be fair. I have done hallucinogens and uh, every couple decades, whether I need it or not, I do it, you know, blow out the carbon. It's not like cannabis edibles. Mm. People are not going to start microdosing all the time. There's not going to be a huge amount of people that are going to wake up one morning and say, hey, you know, I'm thinking about doing a bunch of shrooms. And so you're going to have a huge amount of people that are going to invest in, as you said earlier, selling those wonderful kits or <laughs> that you can come in and they'll come in and they'll set you up with inoculation, spores, your system, packaging, everything for a nominal fee. And that'll be the same thing that'll happen. But anybody can that understands the nature of hallucinogens knows this yep. is not a mainstream product. Well, what I also think, I think it could be mainstream, but in my opinion, cannabis really relies on heavy daily users. Yeah. And I just don't see a future of heavy daily users and psychedelics. It's just never going to, you know, be someone that that uh, that uh, doses before breakfast and all day long and consumes the volume that would sustain a, a large business. I think it's, it'll stay niche for that reason. Even if everybody's microdosing a little bit or tries it a couple of times, it's not the kind of thing anyone's ever going to use every day. And, and this started happening, uh, God, about a, a couple of years ago that all of a sudden you started seeing a booth that was like the lone booth that would show up at these, these expos. And they weren't so much about, uh, I, I don't know if it was like this underground thing, but it was basically to grow mushrooms. And then you start realizing, oh, well, there's some people, there are things happening because this is what always happens. The rumblings of people doing microdosing on mushrooms and things like that, whatever, had been going on for a few years. Mm. I mean, I, I knew a person, he get up in the morning and his thing was uh, peyote. Oh. He, he would literally have a few nibbles off a button with his coffee. And that's how he started his day out. And he said, I just feel much more clear and stuff. And so you start hearing more of that and you know, okay, there's, and then bang, you always go to, Hey, we can make money off of this, it, you know? And that's how it always goes. It, you know, all of a sudden someone says, and, and then once somebody makes a little money off of it, and then that's when it, you know, it's like crypto. Mm -hmm. Crypto is a perfect example of the same mentality. Yeah. I mean, how many people got into cannabis who'd never grown a tomato. Yeah, that's a great point. <laughs> you know, I had people literally, when you know that people were talking to me about crypto, you know, y'all think about getting into this. And it's like, I, you know, I tried to explain to him, I was in cannabis and I knew how to lose money <laughs> already. That's a great <laughs> so, but, but it was people who, if they tried to understand the actual technology, did not understand it because I believe in the technology. I just don't believe cryptos and asset. Oh, that's a great, great analogy. Back to um, D8, I'm curious, your opinion, do you think 
it's over? Are people still asking for it? What do you think? God, no. (laughs) There's people that in states where they have, that rec states where they have declared DA illegal, there is an underground market for DA in those states. I don't doubt it. It is a cannabinoid for its time. And I understand anybody who's into organics wants that untouched product. I understand that. Just like some of the things I was talking about, these synthetic analogs, later on, very well, some of these might have a therapeutic use. My whole point is, is we're throwing them out there because we can make a cheap buck. The thing about D8 was, versus all these other things was, it was grassroots driven. It was people asking for it. And that's when you you know. And then when you saw how it, you know, like you were talking about daily use, not everybody can dab every day, yeah. but they want a cannabinoid that will take the edge off that they still have a degree of functionality. If you're a parent, yeah. you know, and for some people, this is their equivalent to their glass and half a Chardonnay. Mm-hmm. And the other therapeutic thing is, and this one's really, 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 it helps people sleep. Yeah. Guilty. <laughs> you know i'm sorry step yeah what you doing listening to all this great conversation <laughs> I, I i do want to hop back just a second when uh kristen was talking at the very beginning about you know the change it's amazing to me every time we talk about when cannabis really got going how long reefer madness held on yeah especially in government. It just, it was not going to be beat for a long time. And I'm still amazed when the conversations still come up. Well, it's the only explanation. I think, of course, it's still here because the only way all this stuff makes sense is if you really believe that this drug leads only to poverty, despair, and crime. Correct. Otherwise, none of the things make sense. Uh, My husband- And And plenty of people still do. Oh, yeah. And that's how can you justify, you know, putting people in prison or the the system we have keeping it on schedule one, unless you really believe that it does that. My uh, husband is in his 50s. He was raised by his parents were very he he was a big cannabis fan as a kid. His parents were super. uh, they, They made him take drug tests and all this when he was a kid. So he's still mad about it. Right. parents defense the best science at the time at the time in the just say no era when you were a kid the best science and the best advice for parents was nip it in the bud if you find them smoking a joint the next thing they're going to be you know smoking crack in the alley and selling their bodies for heroin i mean that is it was a natural progression yeah and that's the only thing that justifies you know drug testing a 16 year old for pot or these stupid scared straight teen outreach things. So I think you're right. And I think that there all the, there always had to be reefer madness to get to where uh, it's a schedule one drug in the first place. And of course it continues. And that's the only way any of it makes sense is if there's still that belief there. There's an artificial reason as well why reefer madness still continues. And it's the fact that because of the war on drugs, there is a whole industrial complex one of the people who's uh, uh, running for office down here, who's, I mean, a hardcore Republican, well, her husband owns a drug testing company. It makes most of their money off of drug testing mm-hmm. at workplaces. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I'm sorry, Step. No, no, that's okay. That, that's, that's a great point. I mean, there's a whole industry on the other side of the fence for it. And a lot of that's government industry. So they're and not- I have a, 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 
um, conspiracy theory, but this is 100% my conspiracy theory, and that is probable cause. If you look at crimes that have nothing to do with drugs, how many of them started because an officer searched because they smelled cannabis? There are so many cases that have not one lick to do with any kind of drugs, and it gives having the smell of cannabis being a probable cause to search a car, to search a person's, and you can't, you know, um, later question, did you really smell a smell? You can, if an officer pulls anybody over, it's a free search the car if you say you smell cannabis. Yeah. And that back to the this complex of like how many crime, you know, if, if police don't have that, that I can say I smelled cannabis and search any car, search any house, search anybody, how difficult that could make enforcement and how many other crimes that have nothing to do with cannabis and is not part of that complex might, um, you know, really challenge how police have just learned to do business by how you have an easy out, you smell pot. Yep, that's still a norm. Also, then jumping forward to the psychedelics thing, do we feel that it's kind of dangerous that the psychedelic industry is moving along? setting up business models exactly like the cannabis industry? you think they'll be too closely associated that could cause problems for each of the industries? I don't know. What do you think, Harold? No. <laughs> Apples and oranges. Um, for one thing, hasn't everybody here been really surprised about how all these full legalization bills on hallucinogens? I'm sorry. I did not see states, cities legalizing hallucinogens you want to talk about horror stories and movies made off of hallucinogens oh my god people you know took it and then jumped out windows because they <laughs> thought they could fly I'm, I'm i'm not really sure i mean it's two different things there is grassroots because once again hallucinogens can, in the right circumstances like i said i believe in I just don't think you should party with. It. That's my whole thing is it that it's another one of those things that people can use to take care of their mental health if used in the right places at the right time. But that's totally divorced because let's face it, when the first people got into cannabis, the people who actually started wanting to do the activism had hearts of gold. They really did. It was the people who came the wave after them and said, we can make money off that. And it's the same thing going on here. You have people that are out there doing the grass works to actually legalize this for PTSD and a whole, whole host of other things. But it will be the guys who come in afterwards who go to these festivals, who have these home mushroom kits or whatever it is, or how you can make mushroom extract. We're going to sell you equipment to make mushroom extract. Those are the folks that are going to come in and just totally, sorry, fuck it up. Mm -hmm. They will. You know, once again, uh, right now, because of the speed of social media, it is very hard to gauge where people are and individually and as a nation when it comes to feeling on certain topics because it's moving so quickly. I can see almost in a state like Tennessee for some unknown reason that you could maybe possibly have legal hallucinogens before you had legal recreational cannabis. Interesting. That's crazy. Do you feel like it's a, a tobacco influence in your state or not? That has nothing to do with it in Kentucky and Tennessee. Tobacco has nothing to do with it. Okay. But tobacco's only influence was in hemp was the first few years because they had more money to lose. <laughs> 
and they went in and lost it. And so now the most beat up section of CBD or, you know, cannabis derived cannabinoids is farmers, because the only thing they knew was to go out and grow a big bunch of this. Mm. Well, this is going to be the first year in about four years, there will be less cannabis planted. I'm talking about high CBD cannabis than the market can take. Hmm. We're growing less now than what the market needs. But because there's three years of inventory that has either still in biomass or has been converted to crude, it's still there. So these guys, that tobacco farmers, the only thing they know is to grow. Mm-hmm. And once a bunch of them did, they because they saw two things. One, unless you're doing dark-fired burley, which is that one little small section of Kentucky or Tennessee, the prices of tobacco in general keep tumbling because now exports. That's the reason why, you know, the tobacco base. So these guys, they literally uh, at the farm. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, they did. There was a bunch of people, and I know some of them, who went all in because they had attended one of these expos. And there's these people who tell them, they could make $50,000 an acre. Yeah. And I think uh, it's not uh, often acknowledged, but it should be that, of course, nothing's in a vacuum. You talked about people, farmers that grow other things. In 2018, when Congress legalized hemp, we were in the middle of this trade war with China. There were like record low prices for soy, and farmers were screaming, You got to give us something. We're getting our nuts beat up here because of this Trump trade war. Give us something. And this was, in my opinion, yeah. And then you're right. Farmers went to these expos and heard these, again, when only a handful of people knew how to make CBD. Yeah, you could get these ridiculous prices for it. And that, and they were like, hey, I can get that. Now, fast forward six years, here we are. Prices are very different for those commodities now because of what's going on in Ukraine and Russia and all this uh, supply chain glitches and what you can get. So you, why wouldn't you? You bet the farm back then because you weren't getting anything peanuts for your what you had been growing. Well, now I'm going to go pop right back to soy, corn, wheat, and that more than cannabis, I think, could be part of the reason that acreage has dropped so much because I could grow something else. Like you said, I grow tomatoes, I could grow, you know, there's lots of other things I could grow and and make more. The row farmers, the, what I call, you know, yeah. row crop, or, Baker, yeah. they do the, you know, wheat, soybean things. They just, you know, because I knew I, I got hired in six, uh, 16 to people who had 5,000 acres and they were doing exactly what they were exploring. But they only dipped their toe in about 50 acres. That was it. And then they, but, and once again, they were intelligent. They did some that was seed oil. They did some that was going to be fiber. And then they were dwelling into the, you know, something that maybe you could dual purpose, you know, like extract the chaff for CBD. But they, they figured out real early on, uh, -uh. as one, one gentleman said to me, I would rather, uh, make, you know, go fishing than lose $300 an acre. And which is, you know, what it costs them to put a crop out. And so it was just didn't make any sense. And they saw it real, real quick on the people, like you said, though, the tobacco farmers, they didn't have nowhere else to go. It was either I go back to doing tobacco where my prices are doing. And it was also at that point where getting it is it the HBA one workers, the, 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 the immigrant labor that they get from. Yeah. Yeah. And because of dear old Trump. 
and cracking down on that, now they were having a hard time finding labor. And so it's yeah. it's been really, really hard on those folks. Yeah. Since you're not uh, tethered to expos, what is the future of those suckers? I'm sure, like, um, again, like I'm going to use this carpet example. I'm sure there will be that uh, there will be the big show that if you're a big investor, you go to, you just kind of, that's where everybody is and there's still a need to network. I, uh, you know, CBD Expo has already gone bust, closed. There were, there were hundreds of those. Remember CBD Expo? Yeah, I spoke at one. <laughs> I decided to. <laughs> so, again, and this is a great example. I spoke at a CBD Expo in Denver. This would have been, this was after the, it's probably 2021. There were six of us on stage. And four people in the audience. Yes! Oh my <laughs> God! What is, I'm working on this little show in Michigan and what, how they're making money is their people pay to speak. Yeah! And so, again, I think there will be a few that, that survive. I think also one big change that's happened over the last 10 years, 10, 20 years, has been Chambers of Commerce have gotten hip. They realize like this is a business like any other one, you know, that, that so I can see bigger shows like um like World Ag Expo or the you know big finance shows that there's people that are cannabis professionals that go to those, but pure cannabis expos, maybe a big one, and maybe some little networking ones, but I just don't see much of a future. I certainly wouldn't invest in doing more big cannabis spaces. Another funny thing, I uh, hate they were nice people. I don't want to make fun of them, but I worked with NOCO um, uh, on a investor show. And when we worked, this is not Morris, but talking to kind of a higher up there about the future. And he's like, this again, when hemp was like, this was the raw, raw days, everybody's getting in it. He's like, oh, you know, next year we're going to be doing, probably doing a cruise. And me and my colleague also similar to the tiger looked at each other like, what fool? No, no, business is not done on cruises. Like, well, but that, that but it maybe <laughs> it's becoming more like a, um, you know, like where colleges, you know, where all the alumni gather yeah. over the weekend. Yeah. Because I, I did talk to a couple of people at NOCO, right? Yeah. And, and it was about this transition. Uh, Step, what's, is it NAB? Yeah, NAB, National Association of Broadcasters. That's every April in Vegas. But it's, but isn't it more definitely about, you know, introducing gear? Yeah, it's mostly built around vendor booths mm -hmm. that are, I mean, the thing about broadcast, it's a wide spectrum of uh, equipment technology. So they can fill up a show floor pretty Good, because you have everything from lenses up to editing software to installing equipment and building trucks. There's a lot of variety to uh, fill up the floor. And it's just like any other convention. The floor is open in the morning. People go around, look at stuff, meet people, talk to everybody. And then, as you said earlier, Harold, huge after parties. There is a lot of networking still done at those, but it's more of a corporate level networking instead of an individual who's an artist or something being able to network at an event like that. That's where I, I kind of tried to suggest to them is, is strictly B2B, no general admission, no finished product. It's not about your gummies or your any of this. It's strictly about, you know, the, the industry. Yeah, equipment. Yeah. And, you know, that I could see working. And, and like you said, and there's still it. When you think about legal canvas, straight up is still the first 
January will be 10 years of rec sales yeah. in Colorado. Oh, yeah. 10 years. So there is no history of equipment if you think of it relative to any other industry. Mm -hmm. I mean, it'd be like the first 10 years of tubes back when you were doing radio. Mm -hmm. So there is a need for that. And so that's where I think this needs to go because it's always been a real business, but a business that no longer has a margin. Mm -hmm. That now efficiencies in any part of your process now is, enables you to have a margin that in this environment means, like I said, you get you get to play next year. And so there, in that respect, I think there's more of a need for that than ever. But I don't know if these guys can get out of 2018, 2019 in their heads. Yeah, interesting. Have you ever been approached, Harold, to, to attend or participate in kind of a general chamber of commerce type group that's not cannabis specific, that's just general business? Uh, invited, never gone. Okay, so you have, people are reaching out. Were they, well, I mean, it wouldn't have been 20 years ago. No, I mean, the thing about one of the things it has, and I don't know how to why or whatever, there is a boatload of cannabis products sold in Tennessee. Uh, I mean, the estimation by the Department of Revenue here, you know, we have a 9.25 sales tax that there's probably been 10 to $15 million in sales tax minimum each year. So now we're talking, and that of course doesn't include any of, and there's for some unknown reason, a bunch of us that ship our stuff out of state. So I really didn't even count that because we're not doing any sales tax. So we think, that, you know, it's quite easily, there's a quarter of a billion dollars worth of commerce done in Tennessee in cannabis from growing it, processing it, packaging it the whole way through. So the one thing it is changed, which is, oh, I got to tell you about this, is now I've been one-on-one -on -one by bankers wanting me to change their banks and about how I could not trust that other bank because at any moment they might lock up my account. But be rest assured, if you come to our <laughs> bank, that will never happen. We understand cannabis. <laughs> well, and and that, that brings up a, a great thing, too, is that, uh, especially in the last two weeks, I know, I know that a lot of people in cannabis are trading crypto and, and we're building their business on crypto. And crypto is uh, in trouble um, as of the FTX debacle last week. So yeah. I'm wondering if that's going to... That's oh, sure. Yeah, that's an interesting story. Yeah. I, I Did you ever investigate it? The story? No, no. Uh, her, Kristen here, cannabis oh, no. and crypto. No, no. no. I, no, no, I hadn't. It wasn't, that would be a fascinating story though. I don't, I just, I have to admit, I still have a hard time wrapping my brain about what crypto is. I'm with you. I don't, I don't get it at all. But I think Step is right. I think there's a, especially that, oh God, that huge gray area mm -hmm. in hemp-derived cannabinoids. And if you wanted to see, in my opinion, if you wanted to do any, um, or ser not any, but if you wanted to do um, significant cross-border business with Canada back and forth, you kind of had to do those transactions through crypto because it yeah. still wasn't legal. Let's say I had equipment, you know, not even just plants. Yeah. I think there was a lot of crypto business being done to enable those transactions instead of going through customs. You could be getting a, you know, manufactured equipment from China that doesn't have anything close to it. You still might get seized at the border. How many U.S. companies, cannabis companies, 
that we're already distressed, this is the thing that's going to go. Oh, that'll be interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I'm curious to see. I don't know if you knew about this or not, but because of that, uh, of the doggone THCA flower, which is being sold on the internet all over the country. So basically, under the guise of this stuff, because it's technically under 0.3 Delta mm -hmm. 9, there are literally, I keep hearing about it. So I keep bumping up against companies that are supposedly just bringing stuff in from any of the places where there's an excess of, of inventory and where it was marijuana in Oregon. It's now THCA flower when it gets to Tennessee. Yeah, This is generating a huge amount of money. And the thing about it is I'm not whining, but it's our, like our CBD pre-rolls and stuff like that. It's really crunched into the sales because why do I buy these CBD, even though they're really decent smoke, if I can go on the internet and then have THCA flour delivered to, to my doorstep? Yeah. That's going on now. And you know these guys ain't using regular banking. And we have no idea how big it is. I don't think anybody does. Like, okay, how much of this stuff in Colorado do you think gets put into gray markets? That's a nice way to put it. Yeah, I'm curious. I don't know about quite a bit, I'm sure. Is Colorado, because it is the oldest recreational market, is that what we should all be looking at in other states and stuff? What, how competitive and stuff it is there? Oh, I mean, look, in terms of where the market might head, there's a there's a lot of things that Colorado has done badly or not badly, but, you know, not the most efficient. And I don't think we'll survive when it's a national market. But certain, I guess you could take Why? lots of things. First off, not a lot of people know the very first regulations written anywhere for legal cannabis production were in 2010 in Colorado before REC was medical regulations and they were written by the Department of Revenue and they were based on gaming regulations, not alcohol. A lot of people think they look like alcohol regulations. They look, if, you, if you've ever been in the gaming industry or run a casino, which I haven't, they say the regulations look a lot like that in terms of like what has to be recorded, wh who can handle this and that, who can... And that kind of stuff, I think, is just kind of a lot, very silly and doesn't seem to fit cannabis well. And I think a lot of states that are newer, and when the feds come in, we're like, why do you have to, you know, they have like this caging system, like where you keep the money and how that has to be filmed. Like if you have a casino, you have to, the money is on camera at all times. If you own a dispensary or have a lot of uh, cannabis here in Colorado, that has to be on camera at all times. Why? That's alcohol doesn't. That's kind of silly. So I think some things that, that Colorado has done, it was the first and it tried a lot of things that worked here. Another thing, and this is how I got into cannabis, covering it, that again, I just don't think translates, is that Colorado is not a place where a lot of plants grow, right? It's a ranching and mining state. Not a lot of fruits and vegetables or produce or corn, soy, wheat come from Colorado. It's just not a big ag state. Well, it's a big ranching state, but it's not a big um, uh, crop production state. So a lot of their, their rules for growing things, I think other more uh, sophisticated uh, regulators look and USDA folks look at it and go, why do you do that? So maybe in, in bigger farm states like yours, won't make the same mistakes. I don't know. You know, I look at Colorado and Washington as like, what do you even call that bold social experiment? And uh, both of them still, and it's funny because both of them have their quirks. Like yeah. in Washington, you still can't grow personal. Yeah. <laughs> it's 
it's the the weirdest thing. Has the amount of people in REC gone down radically in Colorado? And has there been the consolidation? And that's because that is the one of the things that supposedly when you have an older market that mm-hmm. you would have consolidation. Has okay. that re- happened to any degree there? I don't have numbers on it, but I think you're right. Well, one thing that surprised me is that there, the lack of consolidation throughout, whether it's high CBD, D8, or THC, I've been waiting for it for years. Any other business by now, would there, there would have been that sort of Darwinian thing. We're going to go in and pick up smaller companies, and, and it just does not seem to have happened in cannabis. And I was wondered if you had, had an end. My theory is just that it's federal illegality. You've built these stupid state-by-state systems, and it's even though there's multi-state operators, they still have to basically be start from scratch. And you know, you have maybe the brand, you have a cookies or some of these bigger brands that you then imprint on whatever new state, Missouri or whatever is coming on. But it's just hard to you can't really, it's not a really a multi-state operation. And back to how Colorado doesn't grow a lot. When you go to the grocery store, you talked about consolidation. When you go to the grocery store, where anywhere you go in the country, if I and I'm in Colorado, when I go to the grocery store, most the bananas did not come from here. The bananas in my grocery store probably come from the same place, Harold, where the bananas in your grocery store come from. Things are Excellent. just supply chains are global and things go to where production is is, is cheapest, labor's cheap, and land is cheap, and it's a good, a good climate. Cannabis has not grown up that way because of this dumb state-by-state system. You have states that are where you don't grow a lot of anything else. Colorado, Washington is a kind of a wine and apple state. You know, California grows, certainly grows a lot. But anyway, my point is it's hard to consolidate nationally when you're when you have to piecemeal state by state. And what's the incentive for a humongous corporation when, as you point out, margins have really disappeared? And this, what makes it worth all this paperwork? It's highly regulated and still a pain in the nuts. And why would you do it? We blow through time with you, girl. Uh-huh. I know. It's crazy. Oh, yeah, we're coming up on it. All right. Whatever you think of cannabis, it truly is the miracle drug of news. Things that are interesting to talk about in cannabis would not be interesting in any other industry. <laughs> the size of the font on a package or something, you know? It's Who made cares? me seem interesting. <laughs> Uh, that's a stretch buddy (laughs) so did you have anything that you wanted to talk about or discuss before we wind this bad boy up sir it's uh, been a packed uh, hour of uh, fun with uh, Kristen and I think we touched on a lot of things I'm looking forward to episode 4 yeah yeah. Uh, about a paid family leave that's going to hit the industry pretty hard I think or not hard but it's going to change things people have to pay for it that's state to state paid family. Yeah, state to state. Yeah, state to state. And what are they doing? They're lobbying against corporations to make them pay. Okay, it's basically to 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 set up something like unemployment insurance, where a little bit will come out of your paycheck, and then when you need it, um, got it. You'll have like some of your income back. You won't have all your income back. The Democrats were trying to get that in the Build Back Better package, but if of course, that did not go because big corporations do hate it. Although, ironically, many of the biggest, like the Googles and Hewlett Packards and VW companies of the world, offer it themselves. But anyway, that's where that's. But this is totally not a cannabis topic. But it's it is kind of. Oh, good, but I think I'm just interested in public policy and advocacy yeah. more than the business side. So you know. Yeah, but there is a cannabis angle. 
Yeah. Because one of the things that has not been talked in cannabis, and maybe we can talk about this in the future, is employees and how the cannabis industry, oh, yeah. by and large, does not take care of their employees. And guess who makes up a huge amount of the cannabis workforce? Females. Yep. Yep. So, all right. Do you want to say how you people can get a hold of you? Sure, I'm still uh, uh, got the same LinkedIn, Kristen Nichols Journo, or my email and phone are on there. Call me anytime. I'm still writing uh, freelance for anything you need. Cool. Step, anything to see? It's a great day in California. The weather's nice. All right. Well, that's Mark Step of Uppercut <laughs> Media. He's our post producer and just a really nice person. Me, I'm Harold Jarbo, AKA the old hemp farmer. And this is Full Contact Cannabis, who's been sponsored by Tennessee Homegrown. And we thank you. And as always, keep one eye on the market and the other eye on the weather. Yeah, the weather. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> it's been fun. All right. Talk to you guys later. Kristen, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks. Full Contact Cannabis is a Tennessee Homegrown and Uppercut Media production. You can find Tennessee Homegrown on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Visit our website, tnhomegrown.com, for more background and information covered in our podcast. Post-production services provided by Uppercut Media and can be reached at uppercutmedia.com. Howdy, folks. This is Harold Jarbo, a.k.a. The Old Hemp Farmer. And I just wanted to thank all you people that have been listening to us, downloading, and also heading on over to our sponsor, Tennessee Homegrown, and buying their wonderful products. We can't do it without you guys, and we know that. And we will always listen, and we will always be there for you as far as our products and also information about our products. Tennessee Homegrown, once again, wants to thank all of you wonderful folks for listening to our podcast and buying our products.